Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And um, I'm Mike Weiglein, the pastor here at ICP. And if you're visiting with us today, I would especially welcome you, add my welcome to Yano's already, uh, and just glad to have you with us as we get ready to celebrate the new year. Uh, We're going to be looking at a passage from the gospel according to Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, and uh, we're actually going to start at verse 39 and uh, read through verse 52 if you'd like to follow along Uh, with me in your own Bibles. Of course, we'll have the the passage on the slides overhead as well. Uh, But let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us once again uh, your words of grace and truth. Uh, Lord, that you would use your word to call us to yourself, uh, to reveal yourself to us, and, and to reveal to us your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you would speak to us today. Would you prepare our hearts to receive whatever you have for us today? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and that you have shown yourself to us through it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting at verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required of the law of the Lord... They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. And he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we continue today in uh, the gospel according to Luke, or the good news according to Luke. And it's one of the the four accounts of Jesus' life that begin the New Testament. And we're going to be spending this winter and much of the spring in the gospel according to Luke, uh, taking a a closer look at what he has to say, how how he interprets and narrates the life of Jesus Christ. And so it's going to take us up to Easter and just past. And we're going to spend a little bit more time uh, next Sunday giving some of the background of Luke and and going over some of the main themes that we're going to see as we go along the way, things that we want to keep in mind as we go through Luke's gospel. But before we get to today's passage, I wanted to just take a, a quick moment and point out one of the things that I think is so great about Luke's gospel, something worth mentioning this morning before we get to our passage today. Luke introduces uh, his whole book in Luke chapter 1 
by laying out his project for us, what he is attempting to do. He says he is doing that same thing that many other people have also done, which is to write down what has been fulfilled among them. And what he means by that is is he's talking about what God has done among them through Jesus Christ. This is what Luke wants to write down uh, for people. And he's writing what he calls an orderly account of these things. Luke is working hard to get it right. He says that he has carefully investigated all of this, all of these things that he is showing for us. The eyewitness testimonies and the stories and the teachings that have been handed down through the years. Luke has gone and checked all of these things out for himself in order to write them down for people. He wants to make sure that all of this is true. Luke has done his homework. That's what he's trying to tell us right here at the very beginning of his gospel. We see that in the slide overhead. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is is doing all of this so that the person that he's writing to, this person named Theophilus, which means lover of God, that's the, the, the translation of that name, lover of God, so that Theophilus can have certainty about the things that he is being taught about Jesus. It's important to Luke that Theophilus knows these things, that he can tell the difference between what is real and what is not, that Theophilus would be able to distinguish between fact and fiction when people are talking to him about Jesus Christ. And Luke is saying that, that what I've written here, what I, what I am sending to you, these, these things really happened. These things really happened. If Theophilus wanted to check these things out for himself, he could. And Luke is confident that his orderly account would hold up to the investigation. There's an implication here that the same is true for us, for Luke's audience today. That as we read through his gospel Luke's desire for us would to be certain of the things that we are being told about Jesus too. If we wanted to check them out for ourselves, even with this this 2,000 years of distance between us, that we would find that they also still hold up. This is an important aspect of what we believe as Christians. We put our faith in Jesus Christ because we believe that the accounts of his life are true that they are historically true, that they really happened. And if they are true, then there is real meaning and purpose for the world and for our lives. C.S. Lewis, uh, I have to get my C.S. Lewis quote in every week. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this where he says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I like that. If it's false, it is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is of moderate importance. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that if this is true, if what Luke is writing in his gospel is true, all the things that we say and teach about Jesus Christ are true, then all of reality is defined by it. All of reality is defined by the truth of the gospel, if it's true. And we should orient our lives around it because of that. And if it's not true, then there is no use for us to bother with any of it. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. 
So this is something for us to keep in mind because it seems that Luke is addressing concerns that people had in the first century that we also have now in the 21st century. How do we know if all of this is true? How can we believe it? How can we trust it? And why should I give my life to this? This story that Luke is telling in his gospel. Luke is telling his audience, he's saying to Theophilus, you don't just have to blindly accept it. There is evidence out there for what you are being told. And I have brought it all together here in my gospel and presented it to you. Part of what I, what I love about this idea is imagining Luke seeking out all the people from the narratives that we are going to read over the next several months. All of these people, the characters in these stories that Luke has gone and tried to find them or talk to people who knew them, people who were there when these stories happened, and ask them about what they saw. This is what good historians do. What did you see? What did you experience? What really happened? And then he wrote it all down in an orderly account. As we've come through this season of Advent and Christmas, we've been, we've been looking at Luke chapters 1 and 2, which tell uh, the events leading up to Jesus' birth, and then all of the things that happened that the, the day that he was actually born. Joseph and Mary, and the manger, and the angels, and the shepherds. And these are the standard Christmas passages that, we, that give such great detail to us about all of these events. And it makes me wonder if Luke ever sat down with Mary to hear her tell about all of the things that happened early on in Jesus' life and wrote them down, these things that happened maybe from her perspective. I just wonder about that. And so much of what we see in Luke's opening chapters, they're not just miraculous events, uh, particularly these angelic visitations that we see, but there is a revealing of Jesus' identity and mission in these first two chapters of Luke. We are being told who Jesus is and what he came to do. This is what Luke wants us to hear very early on. Here is who this person is. Here is what he came to do. We hear it from the mouths of the angels as they come to tell Mary that Jesus is about to be born or as they come and talk to Zechariah and Elizabeth about John the Baptist. We hear it as the angels announce it to the shepherds. We hear it from Mary. We hear it from Zechariah that this baby is Israel's Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for for so long. He is the Lord, and he has come to save his people, to redeem them from their sin. He is going to humble the proud, and he is going to lift up the lowly. And to top it all off, Gabriel tells Mary that he will be called the Son of the Most High, which is another way of saying that he will be called the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. This is who we're going to be learning about in his gospel. We're we're told a lot about Jesus in this opening of Luke's gospel. And from even before he's born and through the first month or so of his life, we know who he is and what he has come to do. And all of that brings us to today's passage, the the conclusion of Luke chapter 2. And it's our last glimpse of Jesus before he reaches adulthood. It's a passage that doesn't always get a lot of attention. It's one that that I know is often taught for uh, children's Sunday school classes that they talk about this passage. But it's easy to skip uh, from the more obvious Christmas passages straight into Jesus being an adult, going to his baptism and his tempting in the desert. The, the stories of Jesus' formal ministry that come later. And I will confess that I have not spent a lot of time over my life looking at this story since my days as a child in Sunday school. But it holds a unique place in all of Scripture. 
because it is the only place where we see Jesus as a boy, as we see something between when he was a baby and when he was an adult. In short though it is, Luke included it for us for a reason. There is something here for us in this passage. The reason I wanted to start at verse 39 is because Luke has has sandwiched this passage between two verses that talk about how Jesus grew, how he got physically bigger through his life, and he became wiser as he became older, and about the special relationship that he had with his heavenly father all the way through. And it's as if Luke is saying, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Jesus grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. Let me show you part of how that happened and how we see this play out in his life as a boy. This is the only episode we see about Jesus growing up, which I think makes it interesting in and of itself. Here we have Jesus as a pre-adolescent or, or Jesus the tween, as we might call him in the United States, right? In that age of 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, just heading up to his adolescent years. He's 12 years old. And this is one of the things that I think makes this passage so great because it is a very real and relatable passage. I hope that you felt that as we read through it. Having done youth ministry for many years uh, and having been a 12-year-old boy myself at one point in life, I read this passage and think, this is something that a 12-year-old boy would do, right? This is something a 12-year-old boy would do, that he would say, you know what, I'm not ready to go back yet to Nazareth with my parents. I kind of want to go talk to these rabbis. And There's really no need for me to tell my parents that I'm going to do that because they should just know where I am, right? This is the kind of logic that runs through 12-year-old minds often, okay? And so Jesus has done this. There's no ill will on his part towards his parents. He's just doing what makes sense to him. I also have to say uh, that now being a parent for several years, I am sympathetic to Mary and Joseph in this story as well, losing track of their son without realizing it, going a day down the road and not realizing that their son is with them. Maybe other parents can't relate to that, but I am very, I see them laughing. I see people laughing, right? I am sympathetic to them in this case, right? And to the the worry and the anxiety that they are feeling at that time when they realize he is not with them. We've got to go back to Jerusalem and find him, right? This also tells us something about the, the, the communal culture that Mary and Joseph and Jesus were living in at the time. Commenters talk about this. This isn't an example of parental neglect uh, or, or ignorance. This is something where they just trusted that Jesus was in the group with the people that they knew, that he was coming back with them. And it took some time for them to realize that he wasn't there. They just assumed that somebody was looking out for him. So Jesus stays behind uh, to do the things that he thinks makes most sense to him. And Jesus, at 12 years old, in his culture, he was right on that line uh, from going from being considered a boy to a man, from being considered a child to being considered an adult. He's right on the cusp of that sort of uh, change in his life, that transition. Jesus is coming of age. And that's what we get to see in this passage. He would have been learning a lot at this time in his life about work and about faith and about all that was to come in life. This would have been a a significant trip for him for that reason. In a sermon that I I listened to on this passage, uh, Pastor Tim Keller paints a picture of Joseph walking Jesus around Jerusalem on this journey and explaining to him the significance behind all of the places that they were seeing 
and all of the activities that they were doing. Here's the temple, and here's what it means to our people, and here's why we come here to worship regularly. This is, this is what the Passover is about. This is why we have this meal. This is what it signifies in the history of our people and what it tells us about the redemption that God provided for us. This, this is the lamb for the sacrifice, and this is what its blood accomplishes for us. Keller paints this picture of Joseph as the caring, loving father, teaching his son and apprenticing him in these matters so that he can mature, that he can grow in his wisdom. This is a formative time in Jesus' life, as that age is for all of us. And that's one of the gifts of this passage, is that we're given this glimpse into Jesus' life at that time. A time that, that all of us have either been through or will go through. A time that we can relate to and understand. And one of the things that is emphasized both here in this passage and throughout the first two chapters of Luke is the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. And that's one of the things that I want us to look at this morning. Our reading this morning, verse 39, the reason I wanted to start there is because it begins by saying, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, referring to their presentation of Jesus as an infant at the, t- at the temple, They were consecrating him to the Lord as their firstborn son, which was something that was required by the law. And then we're told that every year his parents went up to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And this was also required by the law for adult males, but it was was customary for their families to go with them as well. And the picture that we're being given of Joseph and of Mary is, is, is this married couple, these parents, who are trying to do things the right way. They are seeking to be obedient to the Lord themselves. And as part of that, they are seeking to raise their children in the knowledge and love of God and to train them in reverence and obedience as well. Now, I think on some level, we might ask whether this really mattered to Jesus. I mean, he's the Messiah. He's God's son. Wouldn't things have turned out the same way for him regardless? there's, There's a mystery that is being presented to us here of Jesus' full humanity and Jesus' full divinity coexisting together in this 12-year-old boy. What did Jesus know about himself and when? When is he aware that he is the Messiah, the son of God? And these are things that we might ask these questions of. We don't really know. But the way Luke presents it here is that Jesus needed to grow and he needed to mature and that he did grow in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and with other people. And the way that Luke talks about it is that Jesus' childhood was a time of of preparation for what was to come for him in his adulthood. And his parents, Mary and Joseph, are to play a crucial role for him during that time as they raise him. God, in his sovereignty, placed Jesus in this family with these parents for a reason. Joseph and Mary are not tangential to Jesus' life, but they play an important role in it. And Jesus was raised in a way in which he was steeped in the teachings and the traditions and the practices of the Jewish people, which was important for him as he grew in both stature and wisdom. And what we might take away from Mary and Joseph's example here is the significance of quiet and steady faithfulness throughout their lives. 
what Eugene Peterson uh, refers to as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That we are called as Christians to live in quiet, faithful ways throughout our lives much of the time. This includes developing the small habits of faithfulness in our lives that end up having a big impact over time. Habits like, like regular prayer and scripture reading, attending worship regularly, and giving and serving in self-sacrificial ways, looking for ways that we might lay down our lives for other people, just as Christ laid down his life for us. So often, these are practices that, that seem unremarkable, and they, they often go unnoticed by other people. But they are what God uses to form his people and to form the communities around them. I think there can be a tendency, even among Christians, because, because we are human beings, to elevate things that are big and impressive, uh, to put our emphasis on those things, things that have immediate consequential impact, and to, to, to highly value them, maybe more than these small, quiet, faithful things that we do. And we even desire those things for ourselves. You know what? I want to be the evangelist that brings about the conversion of thousands of people, if not millions, right? That's what I want. That's how I'm going to make an impact for God. Or I want to be the person that starts a nonprofit that is going to rescue whole communities out of hunger and poverty. This is what God must have in store for me. I want to show myself faithful when it really matters. I want to change the world for God. And of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with desiring these things. There's nothing wrong for wanting God to use us in faithful ways, as long as it doesn't lead us to underestimate the importance of these habits of faithfulness day in and day out. Because so much of our lives are spent in the ordinariness of our daily routines. And it's here that we are schooled in faithfulness and in obedience as much as anywhere. And being faithful in these places really does matter. It's often in learning to be faithful in what might be considered small and insignificant ways that God prepares us to respond faithfully if and when what we might consider to be the bigger, more significant matters arise. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. There's a movie that that came out a few years ago uh, called A Hidden Life. Uh, that reflects on this idea. And it's a really powerful film uh, about an Austrian man who lived in a village uh, leading up to and during World War II. And this man is shown to be a good husband and father who who takes joy in his family, who has a a good, strong work ethic, and who is a devout Christian. And he refuses to go and fight for the Nazis because of his faith. And the movie asks the question of whether this man's choice is worth the cost to himself and to his family if it doesn't ultimately change the outcome of the war. Does it really matter to live in a faithful way like this when nobody's going to know about it except for your family and maybe the people around you? That's the question that this movie asks. And it ends with a quote uh, by George Eliot, from Middlemarch, which says this, For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is partly 
depend, excuse me, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. What he's getting at here is that we don't know what God has in store for our lives. But what we are called to do is to live lives of faithfulness regardless. We should not underestimate the significance of quiet and steady faithfulness over time in the way that God uses it for his purposes, the way that God even uses those things to change the world. This is true whether we're single or married, whether we are parents or not, whether we are young or old. Our obedience to God, even in the small things, really matters. And we see here that Jesus was raised by parents who sought to raise him in faithful ways and to bring him up in the knowledge and love of his heavenly father. And this was part of his growing in wisdom throughout his life. This passage also shows us that Jesus himself was a faithful and obedient son. He had faithful parents who were obedient to the Lord, but it shows him as a faithful and obedient son. We're told that after this episode, Jesus went back down to Nazareth with his parents and was obedient to them. And every parent right now is thinking, that sounds really nice. (laughs) That this 12-year-old boy would go back home with his parents and be obedient to them. On one level, we might think that this is an unremarkable statement. Okay, so Jesus was a good kid. He was a good lad. It's not really that surprising because we believe that he was sinless. But I think it should remind us of the importance of Jesus' obedience and its significance for us throughout his life. Because one of the ways that Jesus brought about our redemption was through his obedience. He was perfectly obedient over the entire course of his life, fulfilling God's law for us because we could not do it ourselves. Jesus was faithful where we were not. And when he took our sin upon himself on the cross, he gave us his righteousness in return. He traded places with us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And we find from this passage that this was something that Jesus was doing even from his childhood and youth. Jesus obeyed his parents. That's the fifth commandment right there. Honor your father and mother. And I will confess that for me... When I was that age, that was a tough command for me to obey. I I struggled with always honoring and obeying my parents when I was that age. I don't think I'm alone in that. But here we have Jesus doing the very thing, uh, that very thing as a 12-year-old boy. And it is remarkable. I think it's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus was perfect and and never sinned in in a hypothetical, abstract way. Right, We can hold Jesus at arm's length and say he was perfect, he was holy. This is Jesus with the halo over his head, the glow around his face. But I think it's another thing to realize it in this very real and concrete way, this very human way, a 12-year-old boy obeying his parents. And in this we see Jesus fulfilling the law where we could not. And so Jesus shows himself to be a faithful son to Joseph and Mary. And at the same time, and more significantly, Jesus shows himself here to be a faithful son to his heavenly Father. One of the things that that we mentioned earlier about the first two chapters of Luke is this emphasis on revealing Jesus' identity. That this is no ordinary person that we are dealing with here. This is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
This Jesus, this baby whose birth we are celebrating at Christmas time, he is the son of the living God, the Holy One of Israel. And now we hear it from Jesus himself. Another one of the the interesting things about this passage, besides showing Jesus at this time in his life, is that it also gives us the first words that ever come out of Jesus' mouth that we have recorded. We hear Jesus speak as a 12-year-old boy. These are the first words we hear him say. And this is what he tells us in those words, that he is God's son. Jesus is telling us who he is. It's a great scene. Mary and Joseph, they've gone back to to Jerusalem and they find Jesus after searching for him. Uh, They go back for a day and then they search for him for a day. And here he is just holding court in the temple. He's hanging out with all of the rabbis that are there. He's asking them questions. He's responding to their questions. There's a question, I think, of who is schooling who in this passage, right? Who is learning from whom here? There's this this give and take going back and forth between Jesus and these other teachers. And everyone is impressed by what he had to say, this 12-year-old boy. How could he have such knowledge and wisdom at this young age? In fact, we're told that they were amazed by his teaching. But his parents, they are not quite as impressed as the rabbis are when they find Jesus, their son, at this point, because they are filled with worry and anxiety. And rightfully so, most parents would be. And Mary says something to the effect when she finds Jesus of, how could you do this to us? We were worried sick. We were worried sick about you. And what Mary's feeling here is quite relatable once again. She doesn't express joy and relief at finding her son, right? Jesus becomes the the target of her frustration and anxiety, which comes comes out as, how could you treat us this way? (laughs) What were you thinking? What were you thinking? And Jesus, I imagine, responds very calmly to her. He says, why were you searching for me? Mom, what are you so worried about? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Other translations of this this passage say, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be about my father's business? It's a very different translation. We can find them both in the Greek. But didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be about my father's business? And Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was trying to say there, but we do. Even at 12 years old, Jesus himself knows that he is no ordinary person that he is the son of God and he has been sent for a particular purpose. He has a mission that he has come to fulfill and nothing is going to sway him from doing that. Jesus is a faithful and obedient son to Joseph and Mary, but ultimately it is to his heavenly father that he must be true. It is his father's call and purpose that Jesus must follow and be faithful to. And that's what he is telling his parents here. I think there's a, there's a challenge in uh, this exchange Jesus has with Mary uh, to all of us who are parents. That no matter what our hopes are for our kids, and no matter what our plans are or our expectations are for our children, that their lives belong to God. Ultimately, our children's lives belong to God. And we as parents are called to submit to God's will for their lives. And it's not always easy to do. It's not always easy to do. Jesus says, it is necessary for me to be about my father's business. 
Jesus is talking to the rabbis here because it is what his heavenly father had in store for him. This was part of his father's business. And this phrase that we hear here, it is necessary, is one that we will see again in Luke's gospel, and it speaks to God's sovereign plan for the redemption of the world. History has an end that has been ordained by God, and we can be sure that it will come about. And central to this plan and purpose is God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And the things that he did in his life, the things that we're going to be looking at in Luke's gospel, were necessary pieces of his father's business. They were necessary to God's plan. Jesus knew even at age 12 that he needed to follow his heavenly father's plan for his life and wherever that may lead. And we know that in the end that this led Jesus to his crucifixion, to the cross, where he took all of our sins upon himself. In Luke 19, we are given as much of Jesus' mission statement as we see in the scriptures in a very succinct way when Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Jesus was sent to do. Friends, at some point in each of our lives, we have found ourselves lost in some way or another. And maybe even today for you, you are here and you feel that you are lost in some way that your life isn't where it's supposed to be, you're not quite sure how to get out of it. All of us have been there at some point in our lives, and all of us will be there again probably at some point. And Jesus says it is precisely because of this truth that he came into this world, because we are lost without him. And so he has come to find us and to save us and bring us home into the arms of our heavenly Father. This is why he was crucified, because it was necessary to his father's plan. But from being crucified, we know that Jesus was raised again, and that he was glorified, and that he now reigns as Lord of heaven and earth, and he bids us to put our faith in him. Will you do it? Friends, will you do it? Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks uh, for parents like Mary and Joseph, people who set for us an example of, of quiet and steady faithfulness over a life. We thank you for the people in our lives, uh, who you have placed in our lives, who, who do that for us, who have set that example for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the small things, of this life, just as they were, so that you might use us for your purposes. And more than that, Lord, we thank you for your faithful son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to seek and to save us when we were lost, who was obedient even to death on the cross for our sakes, who fulfilled the law where we couldn't in order that we might be saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.